House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. In from Seattle, uh, my stomping grounds, uh, Michael Jensen, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Seattle, wow, that's a great place. So, um, uh, if you've been there a long time? Oh, that's a complicated question. Um, I, I, I originally moved here in 1989, and my husband and I lived here until 2016 uh, with a few other stops in different places. But then in 2016, um, we sold our house and decided to be something, become something called digital nomads. Um, and since we both work online as writers, that means we have the freedom to work wherever we want it. So as a digital nomad, uh, for the past two and a half years, we've been traveling the world, um, living in different places for one to three months. And we are currently back in Seattle uh, because of the pandemic. Right. Well, that's that's pretty. You know, uh, I was there at that, that time, too. I wonder if we crossed paths. Uh, I was at UW in, in Seattle, and, and I was at C89 Five FM. Oh, okay. You know, yeah, to, no, I, I, I'm sure we would have remembered each other if we crossed paths. It's a big city with a lot of gay people. No. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> you know, you know, Charlie's on Broadway. I was a waiter there. Oh, were you really? Well, yeah. then maybe we did. Maybe we did cross paths eating there one night. Yeah, I did. I, I did five nights a week there through college, and uh, and lived on Capitol Hill there on uh, what was it, uh, Boylston, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, we lived off of we lived off of John, just down below where the the, the Safeway is on Fifteenth. So, you know, the odds are actually quite good. We walked past each other at some point. Well, there you go. See, it's small world, small world, and uh, rainy as usual, of course. Um, uh, yeah, that was part of the reason part of the reason we left. I I love Seattle, and I was fine with the weather until I wasn't. And one one January morning. After we had 100 days of rain, I snapped, and I just said, I can't. We were already planning on leaving, and I just said, we have to leave sooner than we were planning on because I can't do this anymore. It was like a, a rain gauge that was filling up with water, and I was fine until we overflowed, and then that was it. I was done. Yeah. So was that your first murder? <laughs> um, I refused to answer that on the grounds it might incriminate me. Oh, there you go. Yeah, don't worry about it. Uh, so listen, uh, your books, Man and Beast, Man, and Monster. No. Um, right, I, correct. You, you used me on the cover, I see, but uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember giving permission, but that's okay. That, that's me. I modeled for that picture. Oh, no. <laughs> Not true. <laughs> oh, boy, I was going to say. Uh, no, if that were true, you'd do that with all of your uh, promo shots, you know. <laughs> uh, so uh, how did you start writing? Where did, when did it begin for you? Uh, well, if you want to go way back, um, it would be the sixth grade. I was, I was a very early reader from, from, from whenever I can begin. And our sixth grade project was to write a book. We had to write a book. We had to illustrate it. We had to come up with a cover and bind it. And when the teacher gave that assignment, I literally, it was a group project. Um, I seized control with both hands and I would not let go because the idea of creating a book, um, was so amazing to me. And I think that might've been the moment when I realized oh, wow, it's not just these, these mysterious people who put books in bookstores that can write a book. Apparently, I can do it, too. And from that moment on, 
um, I wanted to be a writer and, you know, did various, you know, kid scribblings and, and, you know, was a voracious reader and read everything. Um, and it was just, it was all I wanted to do from, from that point on. Um, and then went to university and I, I, uh, studied business because I was 18. It was the last time I let a, anyone make a decision for me. My dad twisted my arm, but the minute I got out of college, I started figuring out how I could become a writer. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. Now, so you pick, um, now this is part of a series kind of these two books, Savage Land, I believe. Um, now, now, you call it gay historical fiction. Um, so what's the premise when you, when you do these books? Well, the premise of the first book, um, it actually is based on a very famous uh, American historical figure who people don't, Everybody knows who he is, but people don't really give him much thought, and he's sort of considered a kid's subject matter. And I'm talking about an individual named, named John Chapman, and he's better known as Johnny Appleseed. And the whole idea for this book came about when uh, Brent, my husband, was getting ready to interview Shelley Duvall about her fairy tale theater, and we were watching... Uh, an episode of it that featured uh, Johnny Appleseed and the character was falling in love with, I think it was Molly Ringwald. I think she played the, the female role. And I don't know how I knew this. I don't know what went off in the back of my mind, but somehow I was watching the show. I thought, I don't think Johnny Appleseed ever fell in love with any, any woman. I don't, I don't recall that ever being part of his story. And so that sort of lodged in my brain for a little bit. And I kept thinking it over and I've always loved history. It's my, it's my, it was my favorite subject in school. I love reading historical novels. And finally one day I thought, I want to do a little research. I'm curious, you know, about this guy. So I, I dug up um, what materials I could. And it, it was mostly just the kid stuff. But if you dug deeper, you could find a few more serious books about him, you know, written, you know, 100, 150 years ago. And the more I got into it and read about his life, he started on the east coast of the United States, and he really didn't fit in. He was born in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. And he kept making his way farther uh, farther west, you know, deeper and deeper into the wilderness. And as I'm reading it, there was no mention of any relationship whatsoever. He was never married in his life, um, never had any whiff of, of having a female companion. And I suddenly had this idea that this was a gay guy, as we would define it in you know, the mid-1800s, who didn't fit in back east in civilization, so he headed west in order to become the person he wanted to be, to find the freedom he could. So that's my long way of saying I decided Johnny Appleseed, um, John Chapman, was the gay guy, and I built a story around the idea of his going west out into the frontier. And at that time in history, the, the frontier was, the wild frontier would have been Western Pennsylvania and Ohio, and I created a whole story um, about what happens to him out there and how he eventually finds, you know, true love. Well, how, so how do you do that? Like when you, because um, uh, you're talking to a nonfiction true crime writer here. I'm not, um, I'm not in this fiction world at all. So how do you introduce fiction into a story? So taking a, a, a character that's known already and um, developing a story around um, something that we haven't really been confronted with before. So this idea that, um, that Appleseed's gay and you're developing a story, 
Um, where, where do, where does that come from for someone like you? Um, well, for me, it starts with research. I did six months of, of research, not just into John Chapman, but everything I could read about the frontier and people who were migrating west at that point. So I built a, a foundation of historical facts and knowledge that I could use to then create the world to come up with the story. And as for coming up with the actual story itself, um, and, and how I did that, I, I, that's a pretty ineffable thing. I mean, just lots of thinking and ideas popping into my head. And, and I always liked mysteries and, and thrillers. And so my, my brain kind of worked that way in creating the scenario because John, he, he heads west. Um, he's actually having a relationship with a, uh, a major in the British Army um, in upstate New York, and they get discovered and John has to flee to save his life until he runs further west. He's just, you know, running frantically. And he gets lost in the middle of winter, and he comes across this cabin in the middle of the woods. And for some reason, I've always been drawn to really isolated places. I think that's actually why I wound up in Seattle, because it was way up in the northwest corner of the United <laughs> States, far from everything. And so I, I, I love the idea of putting John in the wilderness, in this cabin with one other person who is pretending to be one thing and it turns out to be something else. And I've, I've always loved the idea of, of being cut off alone in the woods and having to rely on yourself. And so that was sort of how I built it. And then, of course, you know, I, I want my – I want to tell the stories I wanted to read that weren't there. And so I wanted it to be also a gay love story. So, you know, I found a way to introduce a romantic element for John, and then he's got a battle – you know, he's got to battle man, he's got to battle nature, and he's got to battle himself in order to create the, the life that he wants. And using what I knew about history, including Native Americans, that's always been a very important topic to me, how we've treated Native Americans in this country. And so I, I wove all of those elements into um, the story of, of him. It's really about John creating found family, like, you know, gay people of, of, of our generation really used to have to do in a way that I know gay people still do, but it's not nearly the same as it was, you know, back in the, in the 70s and 80s and even early 90s. And so for me, history is always, you know, you're writing about the history, but you're also writing about contemporary stuff too. And so I'm writing about gay people creating their own family, finding their, their life and building the life they want to be. Um, I hope that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's good. I, I think that, um, so, when you say you like mystery, um, are you putting mystery in the story as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, there's definitely a mystery. John, John ends up on the frontier with an individual, um, and I don't want to give too much away, right, right, right. who isn't everything he appears to be. And then John figures that out, and then more complications uh, result. And, I mean, it's a very... Um, exciting, active book. I mean, John, you know, he's, John, when he starts off in the book, he's very bookish, you know, he's not very, um, he's not an outdoors man, and so he goes west, and he's got to learn and develop these, these things, and he's got to really draw on his inner strength to save himself and eventually the, the people that he loves. So when you when when you're outlining the story, uh, let me get this. Uh, so you kind of know what the outcome is going to be, and kind of the mystery that you're going to 
um, put throughout the story um, before you actually write parts. Is that correct or no? Yes, um, I, 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 I'm an outliner. There's, there's two schools of thought. There's, there's pantsers, you know, people who fly by the seat of their pants and they just sort of see where the story goes. And then there's plotters. And I, I like to plot. I like to know where my story is going so that I, I can build it brick by brick by brick. But that being said, you always have to be open to, um, inspiration and, and things you don't know are going to happen. So I start off with the plot. But at some point, other things usually come creeping in, and I could end up in a very different spot than I thought I was going to start off with. But it's because I started off with the foundation that I that I eventually end up where I'm going. And I'm, it's been quite a while since I worked on on Man and Beast. Um, yeah, I mean, a fair bit changed as I went along, but and in, in, I, I always outline. I definitely always outline, um, but I, I'm not rigid to that as as the story goes i will find you know sometimes it takes turns i didn't expect or a character who i thought was really secondary will become much more important um, than i realized and because this is a two-book series i was especially able to build on that in, in book two man and monster sort of to continue on with that so now the characters you put into this um now where do you get the influence for them are they people you know, people you've run across or maybe seen somewhere like at a coffee shop or um, relatives? Like, and, and, and when you lock onto a character you want to use, um, do you follow through with that same person you know or have seen or do you just kind of create the rest? No, I don't. I don't really use. I mean, I'm not writing contemporary fiction, so it's not really tempting to draw on on people i know i've got two other books that i've i've been working on that haven't been published yet that are set in 5500 bc so they're they're even farther back in history and they're they're definitely not drawn on on people i know um i will say what helps me though is i will sometimes use google image and i will type in some my some descriptions of the the character i want to use and then I will go through, just scroll through the images until I find somebody who somehow clicks in my mind. And that person can become the visual image of, of what I work with. So I don't really know anything about the person I'm looking at, but looking at them, I superimpose things that I imagine about them and that I will use. But no, I, I can't really think of anybody in my books that have I've gone on. I will say I've had ideas for contemporary series, and when I have written those and outlined um, some of those thoughts, that has been based more on uh, people I know. I was thinking about doing like a, 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 a Tales of the City here in Seattle, and that would have been very much about the circle of friends that um, I had developed here when I first came out. But in, in historical fiction, no, it's really not. And frankly, I like that, especially in the the other book that's set, that set much farther back, 5500 BC, um, again, it was about the facts I learned and the world building I did that told me more about the characters. And, and I tried to put my mindset, uh, my mind in the mindset of somebody who would have lived in that period and known, you know, what was known about the world or not known what we know and tried to figure out 
how they would relate to it. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of, uh, well, I don't know if it's a lot, but yeah, so your, your concept of people, characters, um, that have been gay or bisexual yet kind of um, disguised in history. Like like in pop culture, we don't really talk about um, characters of history in that light, do we? It doesn't seem we do very much. It seems like things have gotten better as we have you know, sort of gone back and and done done history to have dealt with a little bit more. I remember when uh, Alexander came out with uh, uh, the Irish actor um, Colin. Oh, Farrell, yeah. Colin Farrell and Brad Pitt. You know, everybody, every gay person in the world was going, uh, "Excuse me, they were gay lovers. We all know that." Um, but they weren't really dealing with with that in the movie. Uh, so I think I think we've gotten better about that. But no, and, and the stuff I've written. Um, it has been, you know, people who they're not really aware of. And I was really frustrated, I have to say, with my publisher um, when when Man and, and uh, Beast first came out, which was, it was originally published under a different title called Frontiers. And I really wanted to push the Johnny Appleseed angle. You know, I thought this was a great idea. This is, you know, something that people could really be interested in. But they shied away from it. And then, unfortunately, I, I was ahead of that that area, that, that time of writing when we went back and looked at all sorts of historical fiction characters. I mean, it seems like now every week comes out another book, you know, about Anne, Anne Boleyn's, you know, handmaid or these <laughs> people in history. It's like we want to know all the points of view. You know, Anita Diamant with the Red Tent, you know, she did a great story um, about a famous character we'd all heard of, but a secondary character nobody paid any attention to. <clears throat> now all of a sudden they're becoming the main characters. But my publisher didn't really go for that idea at the time. You know, maybe they were right. I think they were wrong, but that's what it is. Well, that, that brings up, you know, um, we've had people on that have talked about that. Um, do you think publishers are kind of still a little scared to get too too involved in gay, um, gay stories, um, especially when they become part of reality, you know, part of culture? And and that do you think do you think that um, it's still hard to publish that type of book? Um, it has been a while since I have worked on a, a book like that. I've I've had lots of other projects going on, um, so I, I don't feel like I can speak directly to how publishing is going these days. What what I know is going on in in gay stories is I'm going to be a little critical of 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 the gay male population. It feels like gay men back when I wrote frontiers and then the sequel firelands, which became both were when I republished them later, they got new titles, man and beast, man and monster. Um, it was very difficult to get gay guys to pay much attention to books. They, it was always a tough slog and I'm sorry. It did not feel like it was about publishers not being willing to publish those books because I had friends who were publishing novels with major publishers that were, were at least dipping their toes. And, and my husband, Brent Hartinger, um, you know, wrote a book called Geography Club um, that became a teen classic, and that was published by a publisher. It's, the gay male community has never been great readers. It doesn't feel like – there, there have absolutely been, you know, gay book clubs, and there are gay readers out there who have been great. But as a whole, it does not feel like our community – 
has done a great job of supporting gay authors. I know lots of gay writers who said, I'm just not doing gay stuff because it doesn't sell very well. And I don't, I mean, obviously there can be the chicken and the egg problem. Did the publishers not push it hard enough? I don't know. What's fascinating to me about gay fiction, and I'm putting gay fiction in quotes right now, is that male-male romance has become a huge thing. And it's mostly written by straight women for straight women. Um, Just tons and tons of those books. And I went to the uh, Gay Romance Writers Conference a couple years ago in, in, in Kansas City. And there were gay men there, and there were gay writers, you know, gay male writers there. But it was mostly a, a, a female-driven, you know, uh, the content was being produced by women and the readers were women. And I've been asked if that doesn't make me mad that the gay male market has become, you know, male-male romance primarily for women. I, I, and I, I want to be really careful in, in sort of talking about some of this stuff. But my, my initial answer is no. I think it's great. I think anybody should be able to write anything they want. And these women started writing these books and writing a book is incredibly hard and getting it out there and getting it published and promoting it. That's a hell of a lot of work. And they created a market. They found women who wanted to read, you know, what they were writing and gay men read that, that too. So I don't blame them for, you know, some people say co-opting, you know, gay romance or, or gay relationships. Um, but gay guys write in that, that, that genre too. And it's, I mean, it, it, it can be complicated because then the question becomes, is it an authentic gay experience when it's a, a woman writing uh, about gay men and are they fetishizing gay men? And as a writer, I always push back against that because I don't want to be, I don't want to have to only write who I am. I don't want to only have to write, you know, a gay white American male of a certain age. That's, that's not what writing is about. Writing is about, the ability to put yourself in other people's shoes and create characters and inhabit them. And, and, you know, yes, it's always a little more difficult and especially these days more complicated in terms of own voices and, you know, Oh, now I'm going down a whole rabbit hole and stuff, but I think, I, I think I wanted really far afield from your, from your, your question. Um, no, I don't feel like publishers are shying away from it. It feels to me, if anything, pop culture is, is embracing gay content more than ever. I mean, you look on Netflix and there was the, the movie Love, Simon came out and now there's a series based on that. Uh, it feels like we actually have, you know, gay, gay TV shows on TV now. Um, uh, what was the Ryan Murphy uh, about the, the, the drag queens um, on, on uh, FX? I, it feels like, it feels to me like, the world we've been fighting for. I used to run a website called AfterElton.com, which was focused on uh, gay and bisexual men and pop culture. And back then we had, we scraped to find characters to cover any minor character who showed up in an episode, we would write about it. And today it's, you know, we're awash in, in gay stuff. There can always be more, there can always be better. Um, but I don't feel like the problem with today's world is that gay stuff is, is harder to sell. And as a matter of fact, uh, my husband and I have, have written a memoir about our travels as digital nomads, and we've been talking to different agents. And one of the agents was really excited. He said, the gay angle is going to be great. That's, that's something really fresh and different that is, is going to make you guys stand out. Um, if you talk to a writer who is, is dealing in contemporary gay fiction, you might get a different answer.
Oh, yeah, I have. And, but, but I agree. Um, I think that, um, yeah, that subject of, of male-male romance and, and females writing and all that, I've heard that a lot. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's kind of one of those subjects. Um, the gay community on whole is sort of that way. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've been in the nonfiction true crime thing, for, and 16 books later, um, I'm very seldom mentioned or brought into any sort of group, any sort of gay book group or writing group. It's like, um, I'm, I guess I'm not gay enough. So the books, you're, the subject matter you're writing about, it's not specifically it's gay. Nice. No, it's 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 true stories. It's it doesn't, um, uh, you know, that's sort of the way it is. I uh, so um, it doesn't really get brought in. So it's not about a, a person being gay that's writing. It's about a person that's gay that's writing gay subject. And, and I think that's sort of, uh, that's within our own community, I think that's sort of a, a negative, because um, we're only celebrating people if we talk about gay characters. Sure, that makes sense. You know, and that's sort of how I feel. I feel that, that anybody else that's gay that is writing in any other area is primarily ignored, and um, it's really, it's not celebrated. It's not part of any awards or anything like that. They'll, they'll never, I'll never be involved in any of that because um, my subject matter is not about um, gay life, I guess you might say. Right. So, so, so I'm sort of used to that in a sense. I, that, that's okay. That's just how it is. Um, um, so now you, you have gone on to this, like you were talking about this traveling and 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 doing that explain what that is like you've got a website and everything maybe maybe give listeners an idea of what you're doing with your husband sure um the website is called uh brent and michael are going places and it's all about how um we basically reinvented our lives we became something called digital nomads and it it actually not to go down the political rabbit hole it actually started the night trump got elected um we had a house here in seattle and we'd always talked to we've always talked about traveling. I've lived overseas before. I finished high school in Australia. Um, we love traveling, but we thought we'd always talked about going and living overseas. And yet for various reasons, um, you know, it, it just wasn't happening. There's always a reason to keep us here. Well, the night Trump got elected, um, we were so upset and so horrified. We said, we need to do something. And that something is let's get out of here. Let, we think things are going to go badly under Trump. Um, let's, sell the house and, and get out of here. And so we literally, he was elected November 6th, and I believe our we closed on selling the house on January 7th. So we literally did it in, in about, you know, a two-month period. And we needed a year to get our lives together and, and online. And Brent's dad, um, you know, who we were, we weren't taking care of him, but we saw him fairly frequently. He wasn't yet in any sort of assisted care, which he needed. So we needed a year in order to get everything together. Uh, and we were doing that. And while we were doing that, we were thinking about where we wanted to go and how we were going to do it. And we didn't really know what we were. I mean, we knew we were going to travel and live overseas, but you know, we weren't really planning on being expats because we weren't going to go live in one city. And we thought, well, we'll just go live in different cities and rent through Airbnb. And we'll just see how it goes and hope we're not really lonely and hope we're not, you know, isolated because we can't speak the language. And then about, oh, I don't know, six months before we were going, I was reading the New York Times travel section and there was this article on something called Digital Nomads. 
And I started reading it and digital nomads are people who work in the digital world. They work online and because they can work anywhere in the world, they travel around and live in different places. And not only are there digital nomads, there's a whole digital nomad community. There are, are locations that have become digital nomad hubs uh, like Chiang Mai, Thailand or Koh Lanta, Thailand, um, uh, uh, Tbilisi, Georgia is one. And we heard about something called co-living and co-working and co-living I describe it as an upscale hostel. You go and you stay in a location and you're living with a group of other people. You have your own private room and usually your own bathroom, but otherwise you share, you know, the kitchen and common spaces and workspaces. And we thought, well, that sounds like what we want to do. And so we plunged into it and we just immediately loved it. And we thought we should write about this. So we started Brent and Michael are going places so we could chronicle our journeys, our thoughts, you know, talk about the people that we're meeting um, and just go about living our lives. And the longer we did it, the more we, it, it, it changed us and opened us up. In Seattle, I was a very, I, I don't know that I want to say I was a loner, but I was close to a loner. You know, the climate here is often dark and dreary much of the winter and you don't really get out that much. And um, I was a writer. I was focused on my writing. So I spent a lot of time by myself. So I did not think of myself as a social person. And then all of a sudden I'm doing co-living where I'm, I'm living with, you know, between 10 and 20 or 30 other people. And all of a sudden I'm finding, oh, wow, I'm actually much more social than I realized. And I really like this side of myself. I really like being able to do these things. And we also discovered the, we didn't view the world as a scary place. Like I said, we've traveled, but we viewed, we thought we were going to be staying in places like, you know, London, and Paris and Sydney, Australia, it never occurred to us to sort of expand our thinking to places we'd never even heard of. And as we got involved with the digital nomad community and made friends, we started to hear about more of these unusual places. Like I said, Chiang Mai, Thailand, or uh, Abansko, Bulgaria. You know, if you had told me when we left Seattle in, in January of 2018 that I was going to be living in less than a year, in rural Bulgaria, I would have thought you were out of your cotton pick in mind. Um, and yet all of a sudden I was, and I realized this is really a fantastic, amazing place that I'd never heard of. What other places haven't I heard of? So it really expanded our thinking about the world and about travel and all the amazing places to see that, that no one has ever heard of. And, and a lot of times people confuse digital nomads with being on vacation or being a regular tour, tourist or being a, a lot of people think digital nomads are rich trust fund babies. And trust me, most digital nomads are not trust fund babies and they're, and they're working quite hard. And we got to know these people and fell in with this community and started seeing all of these other places to go to. And it just, it really changed everything we thought about the world and how to live. And part of, uh, we started travel blogging, and part of what we want to do, and this is what we're doing with our memoirs, we want to share this with the world. Um, you know, we want more people to know about this option, especially, you know, younger people. There's a lot of people going to a, a backpacking year, travel around Europe for a bit, and they're more plugged into just being digital from the beginning. And we think people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s are really missing an opportunity and a way to live. And frankly, with COVID, COVID has stopped travel for the moment but it has also introduced a lot more people to the idea of remote working and living at home, <clears throat> excuse me, working from home. And so we think when this is over, there is going to be a real opportunity to tell people 
about this whole other way of living, this whole way that will change how you think of yourself and how you think of the world. That's, that's interesting. So when you left, was it primarily out of fear of what the country was going to become under, um, under uh, Donald Trump? I'm not going to say it was primarily fear because we, I, I've lived overseas before. I've always, I've loved travel. I've, I've loved living overseas. I almost did not come back from Australia. I almost immigrated there when I was uh, 21, 22. Um, and we'd always talked about going and living overseas. That was always a, a big part of the draw. But yes, I mean, Donald Trump's getting elected made me view America in a, in a different way. Um, you know, I've always had problems with certain aspects of America. I think certain parts of America are fantastic, but there have always been things where I feel like I just didn't quite fit in here. I felt, in, I felt like I fit in better in Australia and in Europe. Um, and I also, you know, and, and Brent especially, had a bad feeling about how things were going to go under Trump. He, um, he was just convinced it was going to be a disaster, and I was pretty much convinced of the same thing. So fear was part of it. I, I wouldn't say it was the primary motivation. I'd say it gave us the kick in the pants that we needed to mm. go ahead and, and make this thing that we'd always thought about doing. Yeah, kind of the spark. Yeah, yeah, it was. Hmm. So w when, you, when you go to these other places, that's interesting. Um, do you ever worry about being um, a gay couple in any other places? Great question. Um, when we started out, we did wonder what the reaction was going to be, um, especially in certain countries. And we actually started off in Miami, um, sort of dipping our toes in the water, partly because I had that meltdown that January morning about staying in Seattle. It was like, I, I can't live here any longer. And so we wound up leaving six months earlier in Miami. And so there we were living with, um, well, first of all, digital nomads are pretty cosmopolitan people. These are people who work online. Um, they're world travelers. They're, they're open-minded. They're a pretty diverse group of people, not necessarily racially, as, as racially diverse as it should be. But, you know, I, we weren't worried about that exactly, um, you know, and we're a little bit older, so we weren't sure exactly how it was going to go. And uh, ironically, I remember, we, I think we'd been in Miami six weeks living with, you know, digital nomads come and go. So it's, it's like a hostel. You know, some people are there, overlap with you for a long period. Some people are there for a couple of days. And I think we'd been there two months before anybody asked us a question about being a gay couple. They just simply accepted as uh, gay people were part of their world it wasn't like it wasn't like it was like oh wow a gay couple it was like oh they're brunson michael and at some point in their mind they registered they were gay so people weren't asking they weren't ignoring it it's not like they pretended we weren't a couple but it wasn't like that was the most interesting thing about us and i remember the night somebody finally did ask us something it was like oh this is the first time it's come up so that's the first half of your question in terms of the community itself not an issue, just totally not an issue. That being said, we have lived in some countries that are less tolerant than others. And when we first went to Bulgaria, um, I sent a message to the fellow who runs the co-working place there. And I said, look, you know, we're a gay couple. This is a, a an Eastern European country, used to be under the, the Soviets. Um, I'm, should we be uncomfortable coming here or is it going to be okay? And he's like, don't even think about it. It's going to be fine. Come here. Don't worry. Went there. 
wasn't a problem. And then last year we lived in Tbilisi, Georgia, which I did not know where it was before I became a digital nomad. So <laughs> your your listeners should not feel bad if they're going to Tbilisi. What's it? Not Georgia in the United States. This is Georgia. It's not close to Atlanta. <laughs> yes, exactly. Not not that one. This is all the way on the other side of the, the Black Sea. So it borders Turkey, uh, Russia to the north, Armenia to the south, and then I believe it's Azerbaijan to the west. And so it's considered the most homophobic country in Europe. Uh, it's trying to be part of the EU, so legislatively, the laws and the books are all there to protect gay people, but the Georgian Orthodox Church um, has a lot of sway there, and, and they've had a lot of difficulties with, with gay issues. They've been trying to hold pride for a couple of years, and they've, they've ran into problems. And, you know, I checked with some people that were living there, and we heard some negative things, but ultimately we decided to go. And we, we lived in Tbilisi, which is a city of about a million people, and people did say, you know, Tbilisi, it's, it's an urban city, you know, cities tend to be, you know, more gay friendly. And so we went there and, you know, we personally had zero problems. And part of that we chalk up to something called, we call the weird foreigner rule. And that's when you're a foreigner in a different country, especially the more foreign you are. So being Americans, which were not common in Tbilisi, Georgia, you're just sort of not viewed at like a real person, you're a little bit like a unicorn. You're this thing that, that the regular rules don't apply to. Um, you know, you're not part of their society, so they're not expecting you to, you know, fit in exactly. And, and so we never had any problems. We make it a point as digital nomads to get to know the local community. Part of what's being different about being a digital nomad as opposed to a tourist is we don't go somewhere for one or two weeks and stay in a hotel and run out and see the tourist sites. We're living there. I mean, we in, in Tbilisi, we lived in a former Soviet-era apartment building with Georgians, you know, that we saw every day riding up and down the elevator, and we shopped at the local fruit and veg store, um, went to a local co-working place. So we were, we had digital nomad friends we did things with, but our day-to-day -day life was part of the community, and we really loved that because we get a much better sense of a place than if you just go and, and see the, the tourist highlights and you 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 know, there can be a language barrier, but you do get to know people to a certain extent. And we did get to know um, the local Georgian gay community, including the fellow who leads um, the most prominent gay rights group in, in Georgia. And I interviewed him for the, the our, our website, and we talked with him and I'm still friends with him and follow what's going on there. And you learn the world is much more complicated than you think. You hear from way far away that Georgia is really homophobic and, you know, it's got real problems. And then you go there and you find, yeah, it's not America. You know, it's, it's not Canada. It is the, the church does hold a lot more sway there and, and people are more closeted. But on the other hand, they are living their lives and they're happy and they're dating and they're fighting for equality. And by being there, you know, cause you do, you do ask yourself a question. Should I go to a country that is, not supportive of, of gay rights. In Georgia, it's a little more complicated because, like I said, the, the government is supportive um, on the books. They don't always enforce it. But we decided that by going there and being an out couple and getting to know local Georgians and sort of telling them about our lives and, and gay Georgians as well, sort of saying, um, here's how we live and, and here's how you can be. We don't, we're not there to teach them. But 
I don't know, we show them something else and we let them see the world is, 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 a, is a bigger place, which frankly the Internet was already doing. And I think Georgia is making um, lots of, of steps in, in the right direction. But to answer your question, we haven't been anywhere where being a gay couple has ever once come up or been an issue or made us feel uncomfortable um, you know, to the contrary, we lived in southern Italy for a while, which is also very conservative, and the uh, uh, co-living situation we were living in, they wanted us to do a night where we spoke to a gay group, and we went and spoke to them, and we had this fantastic reception, and they were talking about all the things they're doing to, to make their lives better. So um, not only has it not been a problem, it's actually been a really good thing. It's been really great to get out there that way. Yeah, I think it's I think it's totally interesting. I think it's the way to go. You meet, and you get involved in the lifestyle and and the way the way it runs in that place, that country or city, and um, that's how you learn, right? I, I, yeah, I, absolutely. I that anyway, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, go ahead. That's fascinating. I was just going to say it's a fascinating way to be. I I think that's great. Uh, with all of the so, were you? Um, traveling at the time that the COVID was hitting? We were. Um, we were in Mexico City, um, which, again, sort of going back to the places you don't think you're going to live, I think because Mexico borders the United States and we're very familiar with it, um, we kind of take it for granted. You know, people go down to Puerto Vallarta and Los Cabos, but they don't ever think of, of the other parts of Mexico. At least we didn't. I guess I shouldn't project onto other people. And we went to Mexico City because some of our digital nomad friends were going there. And Mexico City turned out to be this amazing, fantastic city. I mean, just, you know, I mean, yes, there's poverty there, um, but it's incredibly cosmopolitan. It's got amazing history. Um, we just love living there. And we were, we were there um, when COVID happened. We were supposed to be moving to a much smaller town called Oaxaca. And, you know, we started hearing about this, this virus in China and what was going on and and it's funny, I'm normally the one who pays attention to these things and starts to think um, things are going to be bad. This time, I, I don't know, I think I thought, oh, this is just another virus scare. And so Brent was paying a lot more attention to it and sort of talking about it. And I kept saying, this isn't going to be that bad. We don't have to worry about it. And then I started to pay more attention and realize what was going on. And we started talking to our nomad friends saying, we think this is going to be something really serious. And we finally made the decision in... We'd arrived there January 1st, and I think we left about March 10th. We, did, we finally decided, as much as we hated to do it, um, we decided to come back to the, the U.S. And a friend of ours, one of our digital nomad friends, um, was coming back to uh, Austin, where her parents uh, have this house. And it turned out to be a pretty big house. But she said, why don't you come stay with us for a while until we see what's going on? And so we... We lived uh, in a town called Georgetown on the outskirts of, of Austin. We were there for about two and a half months. And, you know, finally it was like we don't want to overstay our, our welcome with our friend. And we decided to come back up to the Pacific Northwest. And, frankly, we were also looking at how Texas was treating the virus. And we thought we do not want to be here because it's going to get a whole lot worse. So, um, yeah, we're up here. We were supposed to go to Iceland on uh, July 10th. But um, they looked like they were going to be open. Oh, no, yeah. But then they change their mind. You know, we're are, we're doing so badly with the virus in this country that basically nobody wants us. Yeah, nobody's going to let Americans in anywhere now, um, un until there's some sort of unity in in the country and and uh, the, the way the country starts um, 
working you know in in a direction where they're they're going to do something everyone has to work together uh the, the country's just all over the place so it's just yeah no well honestly we 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 going back to trump you know we said one of the reasons we left is because we thought he's going to botch things he's going to run this country so badly that you know some crisis is going to come up and he's not going to handle it very well um we just did not imagine it was a crisis that was going to end up forcing us to have to come back you know to the u.s yeah. Well, that's that's the problem. You know, I think a lot of people get uh, caught up in, in their politics and, and they, they uh, get someone in there. Oh, you know, not the standard. But the thing is, you need to have experience um, in what you do. And, and as soon as as soon as something hits the fan, uh, that's when that's when your experience and your ability to do your job kicks in. And um, um, yeah, it was a terrible choice. <laughs> well, it's fascinating. It's I mean, having having lived in, we've lived in, I think, 10 different countries now over the past two and a half years. And so we know people in every country and you know, we're following what's going on. And I mean, it's an embarrassment. I mean, it's amazing to hear our friends in much poorer countries. I mean, Tbilisi, Georgia is not a well-off country. I mean, this is a country that, you know, struggled under the Soviet Union and then post-Soviet Union, it was in difficult periods and they had a revolution and then a war with Russia. I mean, they are not a country with the great resources of the, of the United States. And yet they've handled the virus in, a, in an amazing job. And we recently wrote an article um, sort of a, about this with the, we, we write a column for LGBTQ Nation and it was with the provocative title, are Americans the stupidest people in the world? And it, it was based on, you know, looking at how the rest of the world, even really poor countries, um, you know, for the most part, with the, with the exceptions of Mexico and Brazil, you know, have really pulled together as as one to to deal with this virus. And I think I think COVID has laid bare the the problems that most of us already knew existed in America and, and just how bad it is. And it's been sad to see our, our friends. Um, you know, who even under Trump, you know, they sort of looked at Trump as an aberration, look up to America, and now we see that eroding massively. I mean, a, a friend in Philippines, the Philippines recently got in touch, and he said, you know, we're a poor country, and yet, you know, we've come together to protect our, our elderly people and do what we can to keep this disease from spreading. And, you know, what is wrong with you people? And it's like, I can't answer that question. Mm -hmm. Well, no, nobody looks to the U.S. as leadership anymore. No. That's, that's gone. Yeah. And that was right off the get-go, as soon as that came in. And, and the ally countries are not um, not in the same, uh, you know, cohesive, friendly position that they were before. So everyone's standing back and, and sort of letting, the, you know, Trump do what he's going to do. And... Uh, and uh, kind of waiting for it to go, but you certainly you, there's no point in looking to, toward U.S. as a leadership in, in sort of anything. You see, that's what's interesting with COVID. It's no longer just the leadership. I, uh, people are, people are honestly horrified that wearing masks is an issue in the United States. They're just like you're you're fighting about wearing masks. Men don't think it's masculine to wear masks. I mean, how how can you be a sane country? And just not being able, not being willing to put on masks or to claim that your freedoms are being infringed because you're asking to wear a mask. So, you know, really for the first time, because when we first started traveling, we were worried how people were going to react to us as Americans because of Trump. And yeah. for the most part, their attitude was, look, we know Americans, you know, there's, there's a lot of crazy Americans, but for the most part, 
we think Americans are, are pretty great and new ones traveling over here, you know, are, you're obviously want to see the rest of the world and you're interacting with the rest of the world and you're, you're interested in the rest of the world and we think you're cool. But this time, you know, this is the issue where they're finally looking at us and going, I mean, literally, literally they think we're crazy. They just look at us and think we well, have lost our marbles. Well, it's crazy behavior. A lot of the behavior, it, it's about, um, it is really a political thing. It's not, I, you know, I don't, well, there is the loonies too, but I, I think for the most part, the mask is really about a political statement. It's about, uh, you know, Donald Trump is about freedom, about, um, you know, Christianity, religion. Um, it's about, uh, you know, uh, America first, and so the mask is just part of that. So, um, but the other half of that equation, I, I agree absolutely with what you're saying. But there is another element, and that's that Americans have become some Americans have become very anti-science and suspicious of science, and they don't believe experts. It's like I don't, you know, no, it's all a hoax. So, I, I mean, there is a doubt of of you know what science tells us. You know, the whole anti-vaxxer thing. You know, that taps into that as well that we've become suspicious of of those things and we you know we're, we're the country that invented alternative facts yeah <laughs> the, it's really the death of expertise in the u.s yeah, so um, you know you know you've got uh, you know julie with her um you know essential oils and her university of google is now running uh, you know setting the protocol so that's that's the big issue you know, but uh, Alex Jones, you know. Oh, God, don't get me started. <laughs> One of my favorites. <laughs> uh, oh, well, you know, I know, we're stuck. Yeah. I, I know. Um, but, but that's how it is. Um, you know, uh, but, you know, the thing, the thing is you have to also look at even, even when Trump goes, um, it, those people don't go away. You know, those people are a good solid 30% of the country. Well, as Brent uh, says, you could say. Brent says Trump isn't the problem. He's the symptom of the problem. He's, he's proof of the problem because what you're, what you're saying is absolutely true. Yeah. And, and you know, he's just, well, he's giving it a, a voice because of his position. But, uh, um, you know, just, you know, vote Trump away. That's that's one thing. It's not getting rid of those people, but, it's, um, it's a start. but they also have to look at. Yeah, but you know, for sure. No, I agree. Um, but the the unfortunate thing is that that solid right wing that um, is kind of in control right now, uh, they have to understand also that the the left and the center are not going away either. They they sort of think that um, they can force the way they want it to be um but but none of the none of the people on the other side are going anywhere either they have to start uh relaxing and people start have to start working together for sure yeah i'm you know i'm increasingly optimistic that we're going to see a big change in in november i'm i'm yeah i'm hopeful and i haven't been very hopeful lately so it's nice to feel hopeful <laughs> Well, I think, yeah, I think, you know, it's just a McCarthyism 2.0, you know, it's just, you're going to have these swings and, and uh, people just have to keep on uh, moving forward and not uh, not letting it stop them, so, you know. Um, 
Let's talk about where people can find you. So uh, where does where does everyone find you? What's the best place to do that? Well, I am widely available online. Uh, I've got a website just devoted to my books called michaeljensen.com. So you can find me there. Um, if you're interested in the travel part, uh, you can find me at brentandmichaelaregoingplaces.com. There's all kinds of information about our, our travels, about our adventures, the time our, our flight across the Atlantic caught on fire and the time our apartment in Bulgaria caught on fire, um, <laughs> interviews with people we, we've met along the way. Uh, I also, I'm big on Instagram. I really, really enjoy Instagram, um, posting pictures and stories and sharing things that we've done. And that's um, at Brent and Michael are, are going places, Instagram. Um, we also have a Facebook site, Brent and Michael are going places, and Twitter, Brent and Michael are going places. So if you look for us on social media, you will find us there. And um, I, I love it. I love chatting with people. I have been talking with people this week. I have chatted with people, you know, in the Philippines, in Mexico, in India, in Pakistan, um, just all over the world. And I, I really love that part of it. So, you know, I'm happy to do that. Okay. And what's your grinder? No. <laughs> <laughs> now we're we're going to have you, of course, on our website as well, so people that uh, if they want to find you and they're listening, they can do one click and find you. So that's available as well. Great. Um, well, it's been great. Um, our guest has been Michael Jensen, uh, author and uh, digital nomad. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Alan. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.